Deep Transformation family, tribe, brothers and sisters, let me introduce to you in part one, Bruce Alderman, poet, mystic, scholar, where we explore the unitive experience and the non-dual and how our spiritual practices gets the universe working for us on the journey of our enlightenment. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuis. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, CEO of iAwake Technologies, which creates those beautiful uh, meditation soundtracks. And today we have an opportunity of discussing two topics which are very timely for our, our era and the issues of our era. One of the major topics we want to discuss is the meeting of different re religious traditions and the challenges and opportunities they confer in our ability to draw for the first time in human history from the world's spiritual traditions and practices and teachings and to meld them in our own unique ways in our in our unique lives and today to do that we have world authority on this topic bruce alderman bruce is one of those rare people who is truly a polymath which is no small achievement in this era of information glut and it's rare to find someone who ranges across multiple disciplines and even more rare to find someone who integrates them. Yet that's what Bruce does, and he is one of the great pioneers in the emerging field of what's called meta-theory. As our information has, has exploded and keeps exploding, as information and disciplines become more siloed and don't talk to each other, as people know more and more about less and less, there's emerged this field of inquiry of meta-theory, which is trying to look at how do we put all these apparently disparate fields of information together and meld them into a coherent whole, an integral whole. The best-known exponent of that is Ken Wilber, but there are a handful of people, and I really do mean only a handful of people, who are masters of the several integrative meta-theories that have emerged. And one of them is Bruce Alderman, who really is, along with a handful of others, as I said, the very few people who ranges across multiple disciplines, is really on top of the major meta-theories of our time, and is able to offer a really big-picture view informed by a fine-grained analysis and information learning about specific topics. So, Bruce is currently director of the Blue Sky Educational Program at California Institute of Integral Studies. And we'll want to talk about that too, because that is dealing with a new vision of leadership. So with that, with the introduction of Bruce's many areas, Bruce, it's a delight to have you. And let's just dive right in. You've been teaching and writing about this new possibility of drawing from the world's religious traditions and living, exploring them and 
integrating them in their own practice and lives. So what is a big topic? We'll want to cover a lot of things, but what is what's really struck you as you've explored this topic? Well, first, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. I'm really touched by that. And now I feel like I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> I'm thinking if I, one of the things that has really compelled me for a long time is attraction to other ways of seeing the world. I remember, you know, from very early on in my life, my parents usually didn't instruct me about the nature of the world, but would ask me questions about the nature of the world, which kind of inclined me towards an inquiry focus and a curiosity. And I'm really thankful that they approached me and framed things that way. And so I, I never, I don't really feel like I started out in my life with a closure of a definite worldview or or way things that are or must be, but an invitation to engage and and form my own meanings out of that engagement. And so I think that's been really a wonderful gift that my parents gave me. And it it started out very early on in exploring fantasy and science fiction. And later in my life, when I went through some pretty traumatic periods, I began to reach out towards spirituality as a way to make sense of what happened and to make my way in the world. And I would say maybe because of the exploration that I'd already done, even though I, I moved in the particular direction, I tried to embrace, and I did seriously embrace Christianity for a long time. But even through Christianity, through people like Thomas Merton and, and some others, I began to be exposed to his own dialogue with the boundaries of his tradition and his encounter with experiences of deep recognition with people from other traditions. And that excited me very early on at the possibilities of that. And so I didn't really start out in any academic sense of wanting to be a metatheorist or wanting to put together models of the world. It was much more experiential. It was coming from, you know, what is my practice? What's my experience? And some of my childhood experiments were creating new languages or exploring radically foreign languages just to see how the world is put together from other cultures and other world spaces. And so I've always felt like I've been at that edge, but it's been experientially. It's, it's how do I open my perception through encountering those edges? How can I have a more intimate experience with being through such kinds of practices? And I think it was through, you know, especially through Thomas Merton's influence, actually, I, I became aware of Krishnamurti's work. I became aware of Tibetan tradition and Sufi tradition. And that really opened me up to, you know, a global exploration of world traditions. I know you weren't really asking for biography, but I think an important piece here is ultimately what, what happened is, one, through some very difficult transitions in my family life, my mother and I ended up homeless for a period of time. We traveled out to the desert southwest and we camped out in the woods. But that was a period of time where I was basically in the canyon lands, reading these things, contemplating with nature, making music, and just exploring meaning and the dreamscape and contemplative world as much as I could. How old were you when this was going on in the southwest and in the woods with your mom? Probably about 19. 
1920-21, something like that. And I'd already, you know, been on, you know, something of a contemplative Christian path, but I was picking up things like reading David Bohm's stuff on physics and reading Thomas Merton and, and mystical traditions. And I discovered Krishnamurti. And so living in the desert Southwest, I was reading a lot of Krishnamurti. We'd go to sleep at night in the tent by candlelight, and I would read, you know, the awakening of intelligence to my mom before we go to sleep. And it was a wonderful contemplative experience. My first really strong mystical experiences happened out there in the, you know, in the desert. And after that, I had an opportunity after a few years of living that way and, and, and actually becoming established there, we got a home. I got invited to go to Asia to teach English. And that afforded me an opportunity to work and make money, but also study music, practice meditation. And I ended up multiple years in Asia, traveling around in different countries and studying music and meditation. So I mentioned all of that because I found myself immersed in multiple cultures, immersed in multiple spiritual paths, and knowing that I was encountering something real and meaningful and transformative in these multiple paths, and not wanting to have to make the decision that I I only choose one over the other. Bruce, yeah, you find yourself criticized by others as saying you need to find one tradition and stick with it and stop bouncing around to all these different traditions? Were you ever put in that situation? Yes. I was too. I'm just saying, I'm just totally relating to what you're saying here. So, Very much. I mean, in, in my college years, I went to a conservative Christian college because for the very, very mature and profound reason, I liked their music. So, <laughs> Good reason. Yeah, I visited I visited the the college campus, had a really moving experience with the the singing. I thought I like this college and I went there, but I was already more of like a Catholic contemplative inclined person and this was a conservative Protestant school and I was already encountering tension there. You can't follow that path, you need to follow this path while I was trying to hold both paths, right? And later on when I was meeting, you know, meditation practitioners and teachers there was often the criticism of, and I think it's a valid thing, and it's a real thing to be concerned about, which is a dilettante, you know, a dilettantism kind of attitude or just a spiritual buffet that's indulgent and doesn't really go deep, right? And so I think that that's something I've I recognized before I ever started to write about it theoretically. Already that was kind of coming up for me as lived experience of finding value in these things, knowing that they all meant something and not really wanting to surrender them, but also coming face to face with the contradictions between them. And how do you live with that? How do you reconcile that? So I think that's where this orientation started coming back to the United States. Even though I'd been exposed to Ken Wilber before, Ken Wilber's work made a lot more sense to me after coming back. And I was really thinking about how do I integrate all of that experience from the desert Southwest and from the Asia, years in Asia, with a Western education, a Western way of doing things, of science and psychology and all of those things? And so Wilbur's work really began to appeal to me at that time when I was deep in the Krishnamurti path and working at one of his schools in India. 
Wilbur's work struck me as kind of indulgent abstraction. You know, you're just making charts of spirit, and that didn't make any sense to me. Why are you charting spirit? You can't do that. But after really, you know, all of that experience in Asia, I came back, I thought I, I could see what he was doing. And I could recognize that he was speaking from a place where there was contemplative experience and insight and living experience of multiple fields. But there's there's some kind of impulse of, of how does it cohere? How does it go together? And so I, I really respected that and really felt I wanted to work in that area and in those ways myself. And that ultimately led me to, to JFK to get a transpersonal psychology degree and then an integral psychology degree. Yeah, I've found that a map is a good thing. And I, I can relate to what you're saying because I, I felt that. But a map, good map can save us years, years and years on the journey and get us to the, the essence of things. And I was a wilderness guide in the very Southwest that you were talking about. I'm very influenced by, you know, I, I spark when you talk about it. But being a guide in that country without a map could... You could endanger yourself, you can endanger your, your students, those that they're in charge of, and just make for generally difficult, hard times. So I think we just need to, you know, honor maps for what they are. They're maps. But then again, maps are part of the everything, too. You know, it's just one manifestation of it. And anyway, that's that's how I've come to think of it over the years with, with great gratitude toward Ken. Yeah. Bruce, one of the things you've done, which I haven't seen others doing, is you have mapped, and maybe I'll just step back and reflect on first on the, the many facets of interesting things for us to talk about here, and you can add others. It seems to me we've already just briefly touched on on some of the psychological issues. What are the challenges of living in a world of multiple religious possibilities and trying to make sense of them and even more challenging to meld them in one's own practice and life. So that's one thing. Then a mirror image of that is what are the opportunities? What are the gifts? Because there are clearly amazing gifts in being able to draw on the the practices and and wisdom of the world's greatest sages, all of them, or at least the ones whose teachings have come down to us. And then there are the traps. We briefly alluded to, you briefly mentioned a kind of dilettantism, but of course there are others. So so that's those are kind of some of the psychological topics I imagine us covering. And then there are the topics of the very nature of, of religion and spiritual practice. That is that these different traditions yeah, one of the we can we can do two things. We can look for commonalities and we can look for differences and we can try to make sense of those very real differences and we see traps on both sides we see the attempts to say yeah oh, they're all one they're just different paths up the same mountain which i'm guilty of espousing at one stage myself so so i can't be too critical <laughs> And then the other is the idea that they're irreconcilable, and you know it's <laughs> forget it. So, so it seems like those are the those are the big picture contours of or topics that come to my mind, and I invite you to suggest others, and and perhaps you'd like to suggest others, and then we can dive into some. I think that's a really great overview of, of concerns that have been very important to me, and that I've I've wrestled with in different ways. And I do recall experiences early on, especially hearing from 
professors and 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 certain spiritual teachers, especially Western spiritual teachers, talking about in a condescending way about Asian cultures in particular that mix up things like Shinto and Confucianism and Buddhism. They seem to hold it all in a jumble without any logic. And, and so that's the kind of criticism that I would get from, you know, occasionally from professors and Western scholars. And maybe there is a, a pre and a trans to that, that sometimes there is a naive way of just approaching it and not thinking critically and just whatever is is just part of the field and you just do it without thinking about contradictions or implications. But I, I also feel like I really think that there is a, a wisdom in that and that possibly people that I was hearing those criticisms from, they weren't appreciating the subtlety and the complexity of the kind of holding that goes on in the navigation of those multiple meaning spaces and world spaces and, and how you can navigate between them. And it, there's a kind of perspectival shift maybe that you need to make to be able to do that. And so that's part of what, with the opening space paper that you referenced, I was trying to explore and navigate about what's what's involved in that. And I mentioned Thomas Merton being, you know, an inspiration to me early on. But he remained, while he dipped into understanding Dzogchen and Sufism and Taoism and things like that, and, and he did some significant exploration and some dialogue, nevertheless, it feels like he, he remained pretty firmly rooted in Catholic contemplative Trappist practice, right? Cistercian practice. But some folks like Henry Lasso or Abhishek Dananda or Bede Griffiths or Raimond Panikar. Those were exemplars that I came across later where they seemed to be trying very seriously to practice a couple paths at once. And I was struck by the authenticity and the challenge and the even sometimes anguish that they sometimes experienced, especially these three individuals coming from a Catholic background where they constantly received pressure from the institution and from higher ups about the dangers and you know other things about holding multiple and the incoherence of holding multiple paths, but how they felt compelled to do it anyway. Yeah. So that's been uh I see something coming for you, John. So I'll, I'll pause right there if you Oh want to yeah. I, I'm just uh, I it's fascinating what you're saying, but you're obviously a a profound practitioner yourself. So how yeah, enough about Merton, how has Bruce put it together? How do you put these different practices together in your daily, you know, practice? And and I again I, I come from the root well spring is Christianity, but I've been so blessed by Native American wisdom and Jewish teachers and Sufis and all of these different things, and Buddhists, of course. And and I was criticized for it early on. And again, I just said, well, hey, if it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's the path I'm choosing, and it's going to be on me if I don't get there. And I just couldn't imagine not doing that, although I've moved more profoundly into Christian mysticism in the last few years. But it doesn't, at the same time, I, I'm still connected to these other wells down into this, this one source. So, so how do you do with it? Uh, have you just made peace with the fact that you're, you're, you know, using all of these different transitions and not only practices, but just worldviews, 
you know, they say, if you do this, this is basically what you'll discover. And different people are discovering different parts of the whole, I guess. So I'll be quiet now. And how do you put it together in your life, your soul and your spirit? I remember being really struck at one point and relieved and and, and laughing. I think I'm pretty sure it was you, Roger, who made a a joke about being spiritually promiscuous. And <laughs> I, I felt, you know, some strong recognition in that. I think in a way it started out with me following whatever thread made sense at a given time. And so, you know, it usually would lead to an emphasis in one direction or an emphasis in another direction for a while. And in some of my integral grammatology work, some of the meta theory work I've been working on, I have a, a term in there called henoontology or catenoontology. And if you think about henotheology, this is an approach that you can find in or catenotheology in India, where you hold the one and the many at the same time. And Krishna can be the embodiment of all, or Shiva can be the embodiment of all. And the religion allows for both of those things. You can you can see everything summed in the body of Krishna. You can see everything summed in Vishnu or other other figures. And so it's a oneness and a manyness at the same time. And that's one of the things that I've been really looking at and why I got into that a little bit in the opening space paper, the whole question around the one and the many and their entanglement, which I know has been you know, a Neoplatonic concern and Nicholas of Cusa and other people have wrestled with that a lot. For myself, like I mentioned, I, I know I, I've gone down multiple paths. I, I, you know, I studied Native American tradition and did sweat lodges out in the desert and, you know, and all of the, you know, tried to learn Lakota practices, did intensive Buddhist practice along the Vipassana path. Later, I went in, went in depth in the Tibetan tradition, especially Mother Tantra and Dzogchen. And that's been probably one of my longest running involvements. I did a lot of practice in diamond approach, many years in the diamond approach, and multiple other paths. TSK, time-space knowledge vision, is really powerful and important for me, Tartong Tulku's path of inquiry. And I think one thing that's interesting to me is, is noting what happened for Almas, too, in the later phases of his work, and kind of the latest turns in the diamond approach, which he calls totality, is the recognition of the co the simultaneity, co-presence, co-ultimacy of multiple ultimates without reduction to some tradition's preferred term and without just a fragmented pluralism, right? And that's been really the, the place that I theoretically tried to navigate in, in terms of my writings practically in terms of like living experience, I think it's just, it comes down to something very simple to trust that dialogue with being will be fruitful. Mm. I mean, that's the very simple way to put it. I think dialogue with being will be fruitful. If you open to it, if you deeply listen, if you deeply look, if you dispose yourself to being instructed, I feel like it just flowers. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the simple way of holding it. But in my papers, I've tried to philosophically, like, justify that in different ways. 
that's such a beautiful statement, Bruce. And I just want to want to repeat it or emphasize it that that being open or standing open to being, and I think that's a Heideggerian term, but being just opening oneself to one's bring it down to experience, opening oneself to experience is in some way, in multiple ways positive. It feels to open oneself as deeply as one can to one's experience, which is, as I understand it, pretty much the same as opening oneself to being or to existence or to reality or consciousness or the divine. To open oneself as much as one can is to to open oneself and probably to be healed to be opened, to be guided and corrected, to be actualized, and to experience self-act, to recognize that the, 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 the psyche and existence are self-healing, self-correcting, self-actualizing, self-transcending, and self-awakening. And that that's such a profound and peace-giving recognition because it's, there's a sense of one, a basic trust one can have about one's experience and the nature of being. And, and, and yes, there's enormous suffering in the world, and yet at the same time, to fully open oneself to experience somehow has these profound effects. Beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah, really beautifully said. Yeah, I resonate that with that a lot. And I think in opening yourself in that way, you know, not to downplay the potential for risk or for getting confused or going down dead ends. But I think that's where the faith comes in. You know that there can be dead ends. You know that there can be points of confusion. But, you know, the obstacle is the path in a sense, right? It, it's it's this tantric attitude of folding in and allowing yourself to be instructed by wherever the tensions are, whatever is coming up in that way. And I remember, I, I think I was probably 19 or 20, and I had been reading Augustine. And I remember writing in one journal, I said, Dear God, I think in order to find you, I need to turn my back on you. Please forgive me. Mm-hmm. And that started the next phase of my life, which was not to receive things just because, <laughs> not to receive things just because culture was handing them down. For a while, especially that led into a period of like the intensification in the Krishnamurti's path, where I tried to bracket out all of the cultural dialogue with being and really only focus immediately phenomenologically on the movement of thought, on how perception is whole or fragmented. And I really tried to do a very austere inquiry and journey that way. And it definitely was powerful and a beautiful experience for me. But after some years of that, I also came to a place where I recognized I was hungry for the stories and experiences of humankind in all of their engagements with being. And it was arrogant to sit in a place saying all of that is not worth worth anything and only my path is you know what's going to lead me to truth and i recognized you can you can relate to all of the gathered wisdom of the world in a way that is not 
maybe the kind of belief or that that Krishnamurti was criticizing, but that also didn't need to be bracketed off in the austere and complete totalizing way that I got into in the Krishnamurti influence, which was cut off all world tradition as nonsense, just focus. You know, it was useful heuristic. It was useful pragmatically, but ultimately I felt much better to be in dialogue with the full richness of human history and that we're all putting out feelers into being <laughs> in this way and that it's very valuable to immerse in a humble way oneself in that conversation. And do you experience a feeling of of liberation? Yes. Yeah, it sounds like you've really struggled with this for years, and I'm just going to over here trying to keep myself from saying amen every time you say these things. And and comment about Augustine having turned back on God in order to find God. I went through the same thing. I was in a a Christian cult, and when I got out, I just I can't do this stuff anymore. And if I come out an atheist or agnostic or this or that or a Buddhist or I don't care, I just want the truth, please. That started me on the second chapter, I guess, of my spiritual quest. And so there's so much there. And of course, we've had Almas Hamid on here a couple of times. And when I got into his writings on the universality and not saying, oh, my Christian salvation is more than your, you know, your your Krishna experience or your Buddhist thing, it just went, thank you. And and it, it sounds exactly what you're saying. And I think to bring dedication and open heart and humility and being willing to fall on your face as many times as it is necessary seems to be the way it goes. Are you kind of summing up what you're thinking about it? I did get to read your paper. So at the end, do you kind of sum up in a way with the, what you've just said? Yeah, there are a couple ways, you know, I've approached the same the same thing. There are two papers that kind of highlight two different approaches that I've held. You know, looking at it as kind of almost an after-the-fact theorizing, trying to, to to give some coherent thought shape to what I'm feeling more intuitively. One is this concept of a generative enclosure. And I was inspired in that direction partly through, you know, the work of Varela and Maturana and their whole exploration of what is an inactive paradigm that that consciousness is embedded in a context in an environment consciousness is embodied in a body and consciousness is inactive meaning that our experience of the world is not simply of the world as it is but our experience of the world is the world as mediated by our own embodiment in our own context and it's a dialogical, participatory, unfolding thing. And it's easy to understand from the point of view of someone like von Wexkel, biosemiotics. A squirrel has a world space. A bee has a world space. A human has a world space. All of them are influenced by their embodiment, their context, what's relevant to them, what's in affordance for them. All of those things, and, and even within the human sphere, culturally and, you know, in terms of our, our own embodiment, our own gender, all of those things. And this is aqua. I mean, you can basically see that this is what aqua is pointing to, too, with the whole tetra arising of all these dimensions, right? That what we experience is this ongoing dialogical participatory unfolding of our being with being. 
right? And that there's a, a cohering or there's a, a, a truing between our being and being, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence of me here and a flat reality over there, and I've got the right map and you don't, right? right. It's much more participatory and dynamic and, and living. And so a generative enclosure is, in, in my view, I'm drawing on autopoetic theory and, and active cognitive science, 4E or 5E cognitive science. But basically the idea is through our practices, our sadhanas, our, our ways of talking and discourse, uh, the communities we seek out, we create enclosures which can, if they're working well, allow for the intensification of experience within the closure that we have that can then lead to disclosure, that can then lead to insight into some aspect of being. And spiritual practice is the practice of creating those boundaries, creating those enclosures that invite an intensification of your own experience of being. There are ways that those enclosures can become closed. And then they become what I call degenerative enclosures. They become cult-like. They don't allow information in. They lead to fragility, all of those kind of things. So that's one thing I, I explored. And I looked at how Christian sadhana and Hindu sadhana and all these other, these are enactments of generative enclosures that allow for the intensification of the light of knowing in their own distinctive ways, right? So that's one modeling I did. Then it sounds like the alchemical vessel you're talking. Yes, about. right, right. And one of my papers on that is called "Generative Enclosures, Bubbles, and Magic Circles." And generative enclosures is that you know kind of formal autopoetic term. Bubbles is drawing from somebody like Sloterdijk, who's been really looking at how our subjectivity is not ever isolated. Whenever there's an I, there's always a thou, even in the womb. And so he always looks at, you know, he looks at human development as always this relational thing within growing bubbles and ultimately foams of contiguous bubbles that compromise, you know, the whole world scene. But then the magic circles is the alchemical and the magical, you know, and the tantric. Again, that's another way of thinking about that, that drawing of the boundary for an inactive, disclosive, transformative purpose. So that's one side. The other side is with my integral grammatology, I've been looking at language. I've been fascinated by language for a long time. You know, David Bohm inspired me to create my own language when I was a teenager. And I've been doing that kind of thing for a long time. But I've really come to feel that language is an enactment of being. It, it's not a simple thing that stands apart from being and tries to get it right. It's part of being's own action, and that there are ways to feel into our language that actually allows us to tune in to different ways that being manifests. And transmission of what we're looking for can come through language, often does. Yes, yes, very much. Yeah, and and, and so I, I yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a naive way, there's a pre-trans way to hold kind of the early pre-modern, but I would say in that sense, pre-modern is not necessarily backwards, but pre-modern or primitive way of holding speech as magical. But I think I think it comes back that speech is magical, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, so in, in the grammatology, one of my intuitions is, you know, a lot of our 
metaphysics has been centered around nouns and a little bit less around verbs. But a lot of metaphysics, a lot of the ways of looking at the world is either in terms of substances and structures that's very static and kind of fixed, or there are some moves towards a process. Of course, Heraclitus and others early on, but there have been process-oriented approaches to reality. But I'm feeling in our time, what's really coming forward are prepositional and adverbial modes of relating to being. Prepositional really focuses on all of the modes of relationship and interdependence and intercontextuality. That's the insight of the cross of, of the integral model. That's this fundamental withness of, of reality with itself and co-presence of the different dimensions of being to itself. This prepositional sense of really opening into, as you know, Bruno Latour or Michel Serre talk about, a preposition prepositions what is to come. It's a relational gesture that shows how subject and object arise in a particular space. And there's always these different ways that that happens. But prepositions are basically prepositional thinking is relational thinking. Adverbial thinking is, you could say, to recognize that there are different modes of becoming, different evolutionary pathways, different ways that that being unfolds in different times under different influences, you know, Heidegger's concept of erectness, right? Where the event, where there's where there's a, a technological attunement or there's a poetic attunement or other kinds of it, that attunement is the adverbial inflection of a path of becoming that a culture gets into, that that an individual gets into. So Whitehead is playing with that adverbial and prepositional with his process relational approach, right? But I'm feeling like there's many, many other approaches that are doing that, and I kind of explore that in my work. But what I'm getting at here is this intuition that I, I, I've looked at with one prepositional constellation that I call within, where it's the with and the slash and the in. So it's with, in, and within at once. And this is this holographic, hologrammatic, non-dual recognition that the world is in you, and you are in the world. I am with you. You are in me. I am in you. This kind of mutual interpenetration, which is the whole perichoretic framing of the Trinity in, in Christian tradition, is that the, the, the persons of the Godhead all participate in each other and co-create each other. And there's a, you know, Roy Boscar and critical realism unfolds this in his own way. Edgar Moran with his hologrammatic principle and complex thought, Wilbur's non-duality. A lot of approaches look in Bohm's um, holographic universe. All of them are looking at this kind of dynamic interrelatedness where we're in and with and alongside all at once. And so my insight there that, that was meaningful to me is that we can think about religious traditions in that way. Religious traditions are with each other and alongside each other. But the deeper you go in any religious tradition, you also find that they contain each other. That, you know, the, the old modern inclusivist model of my Christian view is right and all of you are right too, but in a little bitty way that can fit over in the corner of my theology over here. You Buddhists have a little piece of... In a way, it's a saying yes to that, but it's a saying yes to that in a plural way that each of us can discover the others in ourselves, and we can discover ourselves in the other holographically. 
And it doesn't mean that there's no reason to dialogue among traditions or among cultures, because each one adverbially is going to be inflecting a path of becoming in its own unique way. It's going to be unfolding potentials in a, in a unique way that are not found in the way that we're inflecting it. And yet they mirror each other. What Panikar calls homeomorphic equivalence. Panikar talks about, we don't want to say God is Buddha and is Allah and is Shiva. You know, that kind of easy conflation sounds good. And I also did that, Roger. <laughs> All of that. I, I did that too. But Panikar points at the need for homeomorphic equivalence, which is that instead of assuming the identity of these ultimates, we recognize that within each within their own world space, they serve similar form function within that ecology. And therefore, you can make connections between them. But in their enactment, within that world space, they also have unique affordances that are only found there in that flavor in that way. I don't know if that was too much, but those are the two ways I've kind of tried theoretically, intellectually, to hold this navigation of multiplicity in a coherent way. No, not too much. <laughs> a lot to digest <laughs> there. You just downloaded a lot, Bruce, but it's but you're downloading some of the really important issues and challenges and questions of our time in terms of how how we are to relate to these tradition multiple traditions and how they relate to one another and how we can hold them in a way that does justice to them as much as any human being can do justice to the most profound questions and accounts of reality that we have, <laughs> but beautiful. And Bruce, can we also not critically examine the different traditions and going, okay, maybe we got, you know, you went a little off on this one and kind of go through a process of, of this is the gold, this is the dross, this is, and put it together. And somehow I think a lot of that would probably bring us bring all of them closer together by being able, not just saying, yeah, everything they say is absolute truth, but look at it in the context that um, they were human too, and there were different transmissions. Nevertheless, something still comes through after all these centuries. It's just mind-blowing. So, yeah, do, do, you, do you look at it like that also, and being able to critically examine, I guess, the different wisdom traditions and the different practices? Definitely, yeah. I think a couple things that we can do. I mean, one, you know, as long as you recognize, as long as this awareness is there, that you can't naively just interpret the other traditions terms in your own terms without significant loss, which is a lot of what happened in the early interfaith dialogue stuff was that kind of talking over and talking past each other. And Panikar has been very good about trying to figure, you know, what he calls the imperative method which is a, a mode of listening, of allowing yourself to be, in a sense, impregnated by the other, to be affected by the other, to be changed by the other in your listening. And it's a mutual, it's a practice of mutual risk that he says is one of the high spiritual callings and practices of our time. But in that dialogue, there can be criticism and it can both be, you know, you know, from across boundaries. But there can also be imminent critique, you know, that to the degree that we listen to the other, we can actually, you know, with our own insight in the background, as long as we make an attempt to deeply understand the other from within, we can also point to the shortcomings of 
and the wrong steps or the things that don't work or that lead to degeneration or other kinds of things, even using the terms of that own tradition, usually that works, <laughs> right? You can, you can get in. And, and I think that, that we actually, in a global community of spiritual practitioners, kind of owe it to each other to do something like that, to dialogue, to deeply listen, and to help each other by performing these, these acts of imminent critique. And I think there can be a deep winnowing and maybe a, a convergence to some degree, without needing to arrive at a single point as an ideal, but nevertheless, there can be this convergence and 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 deep recognition. What would that ideal be if not a single point? Not a single point, and not not a single point. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it sounds like Bruce, you're pointing to a, a very important way of holding this, of holding it all within the within mystery. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no one final point. <laughs> you mentioned Almas, and he has what he calls the, I think it's the view of totality. That one, a view which, uh, which why in Buddhism calls uh, the round view, which is a meta perspective which encompasses all perspectives. Like if using the mountain as a, as a metaphor, as you go up the mountain. You get a wonderful view from here, and you get another different view from the other side. And but if you go up the mountain, you you can see both side, both views were before, and then the top you can see all views. Mm-hmm. And I find that a beautiful metaphor and an image for what we may be doing here. We're we're open. We're trying to open ourselves to Yin's round views or round view or Almas's view of totality, recognizing that. There's no there's no resting place. There's no final stopping point. There's there's always something more, as if we could as if we could encompass totality or God or the the mystery in our little little theory. We sometimes, you know, my little circle of friends. Sometimes the idea that there's an ultimate hole on we call that the asshole on. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Hey, hey, Bruce, I, I mean, you folks listening at home, I think you're realizing you're going to have to listen to this more than once. Get out your notebooks and write it down and stop it. Write it down. There's been such a, a rich outpouring here, and your scholarship and your practice are, are so obvious. And yet there's a sweetness and deep humility with the way that you present that I uh, find very touching. Oh, thank you. And thank you for that. Uh, we also wanted uh, to talk about some of what you're finding in your study and your approach to leadership, which, again, I'm, this is totally selfish. It's a big issue with me, and I've been studying my whole life, and I would love to see or hear what you have to say about that. Yes, I, I'd love to hear from both of you about that. You know, I, I really look up to the work that both of you do and would love to hear your own insights into leadership as well. My personality type as a nine, you might be able to tell by the kind of metaphysics I enact also, I like to situate myself between more than <laughs> adopting you know, an upper position kind of leader role typically, but I feel like we each can become agents of transformation, agents of healing, and agents of insight just by trying to be as integrous as we can with wherever we're sitting and to open our vision up as much as we can to whatever is around us. Actually, it, it's just this year I've been able to be involved in a you know a new leadership program, which I'm excited about. 
This is, you know, the Blue Sky Leaders Program. It's not going to be, and our, our focus in the program is not to be a traditional leadership training program in terms of teaching servant leadership and authentic leadership and transformatively teaching all the theories. It's instead a program aimed at people who already have experience in the world in some way of, of being creatives and change agents and, and working in different fields, but who are, I think like many of us, probably many people listening to this podcast, certainly many people in my own circle, feeling the immense pressures of our time of the multiple mounting crises and the complexity of everything that's kind of coming at us more and more quickly. How do we respond adequately to that? And I can say we we have to be really humble about it. I'm feeling that in terms of the communities that I'm part of, meta-modern communities, integral communities, transpersonal, Buddhist. We see something unfolding like what's happening in Israel with Hamas and Israel. It's such a thorny thing. It's really, I, I'm finding even the smartest people in these communities really struggling <laughs> with how do we navigate this really deep challenge, this deep human challenge. So I want to say up front, my perspective is I haven't seen any approach that has the answer. The only thing I can think of is the approaches that are the best suited are the ones that hopefully can embody the kind of attitude I was expressing at the beginning of this call, which is that the willingness to listen and to engage and to and to take stands where you need, but without kind of the ideological blinkers or, or, or closure. So that's a little bit of an aside, but I just want to say that because I'm I'm wrestling with that now in terms of the adequacy of any of our approaches to really deal with sometimes the complexity that that bubbles up in the world. Yeah, and I think one of the integral insights, at least I've had over the years and I've heard, is that you can explain to the other person on this side of the of the wall, if you will, their perspective and what they believe better than they can. And they go, oh, you get it. Mm-hmm. So you don't start out with, you know, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're bad, you know, blah, 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 blah. Look what you've done, everything. It's like, why did the person feel like this? How did it get to this point? And you can say it from their perspective. And I think that is a starting point in working through these issues that you really get, you know, why the Z patriots and Russia feel as they do. And what is this? this Russian thing that they're trying to put across. I mean, they're not even sure themselves, I don't think, but there's something there they feel is worth fighting and and conquering and dying for. And the other thing I would say was, I was put into positions of leadership when I was very young, maybe 14 years old, and I was very Christian. Jesus says in the Gospels, he's a, that is the greatest among you is a servant of all. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And I've seen this, you know, I've seen, you know, you compare Zelensky with Putin, you know, and you look at their different styles of leadership. One is a style that I'm the emperor. I want to be known as Putin the Great in the centuries that come, and I want to build this empire no matter what it takes. And uh, the Zelensky thing, well, we're, you know, we need bullets. We don't need a ticket. And I'm staying here in Kiev. And they didn't know if Kiev was going to fall in the next few hours. I'm going to stay here with my family and be with you guys. And another thing that impressed me when I was in the military, I wasn't a Marine, but I trained with the Marines for a long time. And, And one of their principles is that no officer gets to eat 
before the last private is fed again that idea of it's not a way to grandize your ego or your self-sense it's it's a tremendous responsibility and if you do it well it, it justifies itself because you know you're doing what a leader would do and if you're called to be in that position how do you handle that so those are you know in 500 words or less you know basically some of the things that have stuck with me and uh, I'm, i've just been intrigued in how do we am i am, am i getting this right or i'm on the wrong path or is this the path but how do we realize it and how do we train people and how do we support new generations of more enlightened leadership there's a a term that a, a friend of mine i don't know if you've spoken to him before ryan nakade he works with a a lot of activists up in the, the northwest of the country. And we have common term of steel man, where if you want to dialogue with the other, you've got to be able to show that you understand their position. But using integral and other kinds of approaches, he's tried to articulate and, and actually develop as a practice, which he does in the field, you know, with activists and and, and people who are really concerned about, you know, different social issues what he calls, you know, like the, the the platinum man or Vajra man, different kinds of steel manning that were, again, not in an arrogant way, but in a humble way to make it as a practice that everybody is called to, which is, especially in any kind of leadership or, or change agent role, to be able to reflect the, this, I'm just bringing this up because it's what you were saying, to be able to reflect back to the other not only a view that they recognize, but if you've listened well enough, hopefully a view that actually takes them deeper in their own understanding of their position, right? And which could both open up insight into new affordances that they had not seen within their own position and possibly limitations within their own position. If you really, with fidelity, enter into that position. And, and that's also partly what I was talking about with the imminent critique is, is the platinum manning almost of the other traditions to really feel into it in a way that's empathic enough that actually is illuminating, not just reflecting, but even illuminating for the other. Because you're doing it from the inside. Doing it from the inside. Absolutely, yeah. And the imperative method is to put yourself at the individual existential risk for that to be done with you. It's not just I'm the expert hollowing out your interiors. We are in this process together. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Bruce Alderman. We're just getting warmed up and it gets deeper, better, and brighter. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.